Chapter 10, Part 1 of Moonfleet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rob Powell. Moonfleet by J. Mead Faulkner. Chapter 10, Part 1. The escape, how fearful, and dizzy tis to cast one eyes so low. I'll look no more, lest my brains turn. Shakespeare. The wild chalk was a bulwark between us and the foe, and though one or two of them loosed off their matchlocks, trying to get at us sideways, they could not even see their quarry, and twas only shooting at a venture. We were safe, but for how short a time? Safe just for so long as it should please the soldiers not to come down to take us. Safe with a discharged pistol in our grasp and a shot man lying at our feet. Elzevir was the first to speak. Can you stand, John? Is the bone broken? I cannot stand, I said. There is something gone in my leg and I feel blood running down into my boot. He knelt and rolled down the leg of my stocking, but though he only wounded my foot ever so little, it caused me sharp pain, for feeling was coming back after the first numbness of the shot. They have broke the leg, though it bleeds little, Elzevir said. We have no time to splice it here, but I will put a kerchief round, and while I wrap it, listen to how we lie and then choose what we shall do. I nodded, biting my lips hard to conceal the pain he gave me, and he went on. We have a quarter of an hour before the posse can get down to us, but come they will, and thou canst judge what chance we have to save liberty or life with that carrion lying by us. And he jerked his thumb at Maskew, though I am glad twas not my hand that sent him to his reckoning and therefore do not blame thee if thou didst make me ways to charge an heir. So one thing we can do is to wait here until they come, and I can account for a few of them before they shoot me down. But thou canst not fight with a broken leg, and they will take thee alive. And then there is a dance on air at Dorchester Jail. I felt sick with pain, and bitterly cast down to think that I was like to come so soon to such a vile end so only gave a sigh, wishing heartily that Miskew were not dead, and that my leg were not broke, but that I was back again at the why not, or even hearing one of Dr. Sherlock's sermons in my aunt's parlor. Elzevir looked down at me when I sighed, and seeing, I suppose, that I was sorrowful, tried to put a better face on a bad business. Forgive me, lad, he said, if I have spoke too roughly. There is yet another way that we may try, and if thou hadst but two whole legs, I would have tried it, and now tis a little short of madness. And yet, if thou fearest not, I will still try it. Just at the end of this flat ledge, farthest from where the bridle path leads down, but not a hundred yards from where we stand, there is a sheep track leading up the cliff. It starts where the undercliff dies back again into the chalk face 
and climbs by slants and elbow turns up to the top. The shepherds call it the zigzag, and even sheep lose their footing on it. And of men, I never heard but one had climbed it, and that was Lander Jordan when the excise was on his heels, half a century back. But he that tries it stakes all on head and foot, and a wounded bird like thee may not dare that flight. Yet, if thou art content to hang thy life upon a hair, I will carry thee some way, and where there is no room to carry, thou must on hands and knees trail thy foot. It was a desperate chance enough, but came as welcome as a patch of blue through lowering skies. Yes, I said, dear Master Elzevir, let us get to it quickly, and if we fall, tis better far to die upon the rocks below than to wait here for them to hail us off to jail. And with that, I tried to stand, thinking I might go dot and carry even with a broken leg. But t'was no use, and down I sank with a groan. Then Elzevir caught me up, holding me in his arms, with my head looking over his back, and made off for the zigzag. And as we slunk along, close to the cliffside, I saw between the brambles, Maskew lying with his face turned up to the morning sky. And there was the little red hole in the middle of his forehead, and a thread of blood that welled up from it and trickled off onto the sward. It was a sight to stagger any man, and would have made me swoon, perhaps, but that there was no time, for we were at the end of the undercliff. And Elzevir set me down for a minute, before he buckled to his task. And t'was a task that might cow the bravest, and when I looked upon the zigzag, it seemed better to stay where we were and fall into the hands of the posse than set foot on that awful way and fall upon the rocks below. For the zigzag started off as a fair enough chalk path, but in a few paces narrowed down till it was but a wider thread against the gray-white cliff face, and afterwards turned sharply back, crossing a hundred feet direct above our heads. And then I smelt an evil stench, and looking about, saw the blown-out carcass of a rotting sheep lie close at hand. Fa, said Elzevir, "'tis a poor beast has lost his foothold." It was an ill omen enough, and I said as much, beseeching him to make his own way up the zigzag, and leave me where I was, for that they might have mercy on a boy. "'Tush!' he cried. "'It is thy heart that fails thee, and tis too late now to change counsel. We have fifteen minutes yet to win or lose with, and if we gain the cliff-top in that time, we shall have an hour's start, or more, for they will take all that to search the undercliff. And Maskew, too, will keep them in check a little, while they try to bring the life back to so good a man. But if we fall, why, we shall fall together, and outwit their cunning. So shut thy eyes, and keep them tight until I bid thee open them. With that, he caught me up again, and I shut my eyes firm, rebuking myself for my faint-heartedness, and not telling him how much my foot hurt me. In a minute, I knew from Elzevir's steps that he had left the turf and was upon the chalk. Now, I do not believe that there were half a dozen men beside in England who would have ventured up that path, even free and untrammeled, 
and not a man in all the world to do it with a full-grown lad in his arms. Yet Elzevir made no bones of it, nor spoke a single word. Only he went very slow, and I felt him scuffle with his foot as he set it forward to make sure he was putting it down firm. I said nothing, not wishing to distract him from his terrible task, and held my breath when I could, so that I might lie quieter in his arms. Thus he went on for a time that seemed without end, and yet was really but a minute or two. And by degrees I felt the wind, that we could scarce perceive at all on the undercliff, blow fresher and cold on the cliffside. And then the path grew steeper and steeper, and Elzevir went slower and slower, till at last he spoke. John, I am going to stop, but open not thy eyes till I have set thee down and bid thee. I did as bidden, and he lowered me gently, setting me on all fours upon the path, and speaking again, The path is too narrow here for me to carry thee, and thou must creep round this corner on thy hands and knees. But have a care to keep thy outer hand near to the inner, and the balance of thy body to the cliff. For there is no room to dance hornpipes here, and hold thy eyes fixed on the chalk wall, looking neither down nor seaward. Twas well he told me what to do, and well I did it, for when I opened my eyes, even without moving them from the cliffside, I saw that the ledge was little more than a foot wide, and that ever so little a lean of the body would dash me on the rocks below. So I crept on, but spent much time that was so precious in traveling those ten yards to take me round the first elbow of the path. For my foot was heavy, and gave me fierce pain to drag, though I tried to mask it from Elzevir. And he, forgetting what I suffered, cried out, Quicken thy pace, lad, if thou canst, the time is short. Now, so frail is man's temper, that though he was doing more than any ever did to save another's life, and was all I had to trust to in the world, yet, because he forgot my pain and bade me quicken, my collar rose, and I nearly gave him back an angry word, but thought better of it, and kept it in. Then he told me to stop, for that the way grew wider, and he would pick me up again. But here was another difficulty for the path was still so narrow and the cliff wall so close that he could not take me up in his arms. So I lay flat on my face and he stepped over me, setting his foot between my shoulders to do it. And then, while he knelt down upon the path, I climbed up from behind him, putting my arms round his neck, and so he bore me pickaback. I shut my eyes firm again, and thus we moved along another spell mounting still and feeling the wind still freshening. At length, he said that we were come to the last turn of the path, and he must set me down once more. So down upon his knees and hands he went, and I slid off behind onto the ledge. Both were on all fours now, Elzevir first and I following. But as I crept along, I relaxed care for a moment, and my eyes wandered from the cliffside and looked down. And far below, I saw the blue sea twinkling like a dazzling mirror, and the gulls wheeling about the sheer chalk wall, and then I thought of that bloated carcass of a sheep that had fallen from this very spot, perhaps. 
and in an instant felt a sickening qualm in swimming of the brain and knew that I was giddy and must fall. Then I called out to Elzevir, and he, guessing what had come over me, cries to turn upon my side and press my belly to the cliff. And how he did it in such a narrow strait I know not, but he turned round, and lying down himself, thrust his hand firmly in my back, pressing me closer to the cliff. Yet it was none too soon, for if he had not held me tight, I should have flung myself down in sheer despair to get quit of that dreadful sickness. Keep thine eyes shut, John, he said, and count up numbers loud to me, that I may know thou art not turning faint. So I gave out one, two, three, and while I went on counting, heard him repeating to himself, those words seemed thin and far off. We must have taken ten minutes to get here, and in five more they will be on the undercliff. And if we ever reach the top, who knows but they have left a guard? No, no, they will not leave a guard, for not a man knows of the zigzag. And if they knew, they would not guess that we should try it. We have but fifty yards to go to win, and now this cursed giddy fit has come upon the child, and he will fall and drag me with him, or they will see us from below and pick us off like sitting guillemots against the cliff face. So he talked to himself, and all the while I would have given a world to pluck up heart and creep on farther, yet could not for the deadly sweating fear that had hold of me. Thus I lay with my face to the cliff and Elzevir pushing firmly in my back. And the thing that frightened me most was that there was nothing at all for the hand to take hold of. For had there been a piece of string, or even a thread of cotton, stretched along to give a semblance of support, I think I could have done it. But there was only the cliff wall, sheer and white, against that narrowest way, with never a cranny to put a finger into. The wind was blowing in fresh puffs, and though I did not open my eyes, I knew that it was moving the little tufts of bent grass, and the chiding cries of the gulls seemed to invite me to be done with fear and pain and broken leg, and fling myself off onto the rocks below. Then Elzevir spoke. John, he said, there is no time to play the woman. Another minute of this and we are lost. Pluck up thy courage, keep thy eyes to the cliff, and forward. Yet I could not, but answered, I cannot, I cannot. If I open my eyes, or move hand or foot, I shall fall on the rocks below. He waited a second, and then said, Nay, move thou must, and tis better to risk falling now than fall for certain with another bullet in thee later on. And with that he shifted his hand from my back, and fixed it in my coat collar, moving backwards himself, and setting to drag me after him. Now I was so besotted with fright that I would not budge an inch, fearing to fall over if I opened my eyes. And Elzevir, for all he was so strong, could not pull a helpless lump backwards up that path. So he gave it up, leaving go hold on me with a groan, and at that moment there rose from the undercliff below a sound of voices and shouting. Zounds, they are down already, cried Elzevir, and have found Maskew's body. It is all up. Another minute, and they will see us. But so strange is the force of mind on body, and the power of a greater to master a lesser fear, that when I heard those voices from below, 
all fright of falling left me in a moment, and I could open my eyes without a trace of giddiness. So I began to move forward again on hands and knees. And Elzevir, seeing me, thought for a moment I had gone mad and was dragging myself over the cliff, but then saw how it was and moved backwards himself before me, saying in a low voice, Brave lad, once creep round this turn, and I will pick thee up again. There is but fifty yards to go, and we shall foil these devils yet. Then we heard the voices again, but farther off, and not so loud, and knew that our pursuers had left the undercliff and turned down to the beach, thinking that we were hiding by the sea. Five minutes later, Elsevier stepped onto the cliff top with me upon his back. We have made something of this throw, he said, and are safe for another hour, though I thought thy giddy head had ruined us. Then he put me gently upon the springing turf, and lay down himself upon his back, stretching his arms out straight on either side, and breathing hard to recover from the task he had performed. End of chapter 10, part 1